Hello, this is episode 105 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast, coming to you from deep inside capitalist society. I'm Andrew Kleiman. Later in today's episode, in the main segment, you'll be listening to a November 22 interview of me by Jane Michaels and Seth Morris on my new article, What Can Stop Trumpism? In the article, I talk about what's in store for us if Trump does manage to take power once again and what we can do to stop it and the reasons why I don't think that voting for Democrats is any kind of panacea. But before that main segment, there is a discussion between uh, Teresa Henry and myself recorded on November 26th about the recent school board elections in the United States and how a right-wing project that seemed to have been doing very well kind of crashed and burned, the so-called Moms for Liberty. And so Teresa Henry and I will be talking about that and similar kinds of stuff going on in Canada. So I hope you'll continue to listen to this episode, and please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, which is the website of Marxist Humanist Initiative, to listen to past episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to learn more about the issues discussed in them, to post comments, and or to donate to the podcast series. This podcast series is sponsored and hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, but the views expressed by hosts and guests are our own. They don't necessarily reflect the views or positions of MHI. So coming up next, uh, Teresa Henry and myself talking about the so-called Moms for Liberty. This is Andrew Kleiman. With me today is Teresa Henry. She'll be co-hosting this current events segment. We're recording this on November 26th, and we're going to be talking about the electoral non-success of the so-called Moms for Liberty, a right-wing project that has tried to take over public schools here, there, everywhere in the United States. They did not fare very well in the elections earlier this month. And Teresa will also be talking with us about a similar kind of push by the right wing in Canada, where she lives. Teresa, were you familiar with the so-called Moms for Liberty prior to their rather stunning defeats in the latest elections? Or is this something that doesn't get reported on in Canada? I didn't know about Moms for Liberty, the organization in particular, before hearing about the thrashing in the elections and also the revelation that one of their members or volunteers is a sex offender. There's not much reporting of this group in particular from what I've seen in Canadian, at least left-wing magazines, but there is a general sense in Canada that there is a right-wing movement in the United States. And that anti-trans bigotry and hatred is a central tenant of it. So for like years, we've been hearing about the laws that are getting passed against 
hormones and gender affirming surgeries, as well as the banning of trans women from playing in women's sports and trans kids from playing in the sport that corresponds to their gender. So we hear about it, but I didn't hear about Moms for Liberty in particular. They've been a big deal in book banning, kind of surreptitious book banning, where just somehow books leave. They disappear from the shelves of the school libraries. So that has, you know, something to do with trans kids and LGBTQ kids more generally, and also the racism. They're very much in favor of banning so-called critical race theory. In other words, you know, an honest discussion of American history and the racism there. Another similar group is called, what, 1776 Project. And that's like a direct response to, you know, I think it's the 1619 Project, which was, you know, meant to promote a better non-glorifying, non-American exceptionalist understanding of, of U.S. history. So, I mean, what happened is these two groups ran a lot of people for school board positions. They captured, got majority control of a lot of school boards over the last couple of years. This, this alleged moms, some of whom are not moms, you know, they're male. They're one of, one of them, at least, is a sex offender. You know, they say they're for liberty. And that's like, that began because this mom's for liberty thing began as a COVID era project, you know, to try to stop mitigation of COVID in the schools and so forth. So, you know, it was part of that whole restrictions on spreading COVID or against liberty. Their version of being for liberty is to ban books, to, to, to ban critical discussions of American history. And ultimately, I mean, there are real serious far-right forces behind this bankrolling this organization. It's an astroturf organization. I mean, it purports to be a grassroots movement, but it hasn't been. They've, they were very well-funded. They captured a lot of school boards, ran a lot of candidates. They looked like they were, you know, thriving and getting bigger and bigger. And it didn't pan out for them in the last elections. It's estimated that these two groups lost about 70% of the, the races that they ran in and control of the school boards was taken away from them in many key places, especially in swing states, you know, those that might go Democratic, those might go Republican and, and swing districts. They did a lot better, obviously, in the conservative areas when they endorsed people in ruby red districts and so forth. They tended to prevail. But a lot of this was part of this project of trying to um, win over these swing voters with this anti-woke agenda. To me, that's the main takeaway from what's going on in the elections earlier this month is, no, the actual parents, the actual moms and dads and whatever, when they learned about this, when the, the teachers unions got their asses into gear, they've been able, by and large, to successfully oppose this. These groups are not operating in good faith, they say they're grassroots groups, but they have ties to, they're well-funded, like the Salon articles by Amanda Mercott. She talks about how they're connected to the chair of the Republicans in Florida. They're connected to Christian Hillside College, which is conspiratorial. Like she says, they featured lectures about how January 6th insurrection, attempted insurrection was a hoax, how Putin is a hero. They were 
well-funded, well-serviced, staffed immediately. Like this is just, they're lying. They're not a grassroots group, obviously, but they also have backroom strategies. So yeah, you're right. It's not about kids rights or kids safety it's about swinging these school boards to swing the counties to swing the states and they have this blitz strategy of just overwhelming parents teachers school boards with too many changes or suggestions reforms motions etc and this was not supposed to be <laughs> found out by the by the public it was leaked and people are outraged, obviously. It's just another example of them not operating in, in good faith. What you're saying, because I'm not sure everybody got it, is what was leaked was this meeting, which one of their educational consultants said, the strategy is to hit everybody hard with a whole lot of stuff all at once. So it's too much for them to handle all at once. They're not going to be prepared. And that's how we're going to be victorious. And there was something about on the, uh, the fox in the hen house. Definitely, like to just bring everything they got to these school board meetings and elections, I, I guess, and to just bulldoze the, the parents and the teachers that have any opposing opinions who are not as well organized, who are not as well funded, who haven't had time to prepare to be bulldozed so that the parents are outraged about this. And I think one thing that Amanda Mercott said, too, that I agree with is that this strategy is failing. And then you guys did a episode a couple weeks ago about the, the history of this failure of using anti-trans and anti-woke culture war points to try to win elections. It doesn't, it doesn't work, but Mercat says it's failing because it treats people like they're stupid. And I think that must be true to, to lie like this and to not think you're not going to get found out and to have these backroom strategies that get leaked and then to say nothing, to say nothing that one of your members is a sex offender. They haven't released a statement. They said they did their due diligence, which is bullshit. Like people are not stupid. They see through this and they're angry and they're organizing, which they probably wouldn't have done without Moms for Liberty taking and ruining their schools and their children's futures and educations. In fairness to the alleged sex offender, I should say he's a registered sex offender. He's not a mom. Okay. He's not for liberty. He also says he's not really a sex offender, that he allowed himself to be listed as a registered sex offender. This is in Philadelphia as a way of escaping the LaRoucheites, you know, the Lyndon LaRouche organization. I don't know what's up, but I mean, the fact is, he is a registered sex offender and they removed him from being the head local mom, but he's still a local mom for liberty. <laughs> The ties of this organization are frightening. You, you mentioned some of them. They've also got connections to the Proud Boys. These are people who are ultimately intending to decimate public education. They, they think the public schools are, are communist. You know, it went on their website and they're, they're, they're promoting this propagandistic children's books, the Tuttle Twins, right? The most garbage libertarian propaganda dumbed down, you know, for the, the stupidest kids you can imagine. Of course, this being a right-wing project, these, these books are like got astronomical prices attached to them. It's not grassroots. It's not really about COVID. It's not really even about wokeness as such. As you said, it, it was part of a strategy to use this wokeness as, as like a wedge issue 
the Republicans are having trouble with, you know, everybody but the Trumpite base, and they're having trouble in the suburbs. The suburban voters who, you know, tend to be swing voters, they thought, okay, here we can get them all riled up about this kind of stuff. And yeah, like we, we spoke about in our episode with Germentum, that hasn't really panned out for them as a strategy with respect to abortion, LGBTQ rights. And now with the school stuff, it, parents aren't having it, not in the swing districts. It's striking to see that it just doesn't work, but it continues to happen. That just because it doesn't work <laughs> and because it hasn't worked in an electoral history in the United States, I don't think that means that this phenomenon is benign. I like So they don't win the elections, but they do attract more right-wing extremists, religious conservatives, and conspiracy theorists to each other. And then these people together can give their delusions an organizational expression. Like, they're willing to do whatever. Like we said, these people have ties to the January 6th insurrection in Canada. The groups that are like this are sure they're targeting schools. But they're also adopting mass movement tactics like protest street demonstrations and protests all over the country. And there's even talk of doing another freedom convoy style march on Ottawa, save the children convoy. Can you remind our listeners about the convoys or convoy in Canada during the, the pandemic? Right. Yeah. So there's this thing called the Freedom Convoy where people got together and protested against the vaccination policies, saying that they were whatever, you know, they're communist measures, socialist measures, fascist measures. It's a conspiracy. And then there was some talk about how this was a a working class movement because of the use of big rig trucks. But people have written since being this was not a working class movement. This was owners of construction companies and people were buying (laughs) trucks or renting the long haul trucks to go out on this convoy. But they they were disrupting cities and through street demonstrations affect they lasted a long time. And I think there was even like the the government cracked down on them pretty hard on more more so than I've seen the government crack down on other kinds of street demonstrations. And then of course that was caused a big hysteria about how there's no freedom in Canada anymore, blah, blah, blah. Why don't they do this to leftists, et cetera? But it, it started from the anti-vaxxer conspiracies. And it's the same people who are part of the current anti-trans, anti-woke things, like the, the same groups, same ties, veterans for freedom. There's the Save Canada group, which is inspired by the MAGA movement in the United States. There's Action for Canada, freedom for families, these kind of things. They have ties to the super right-wing people's party. They have ties to the anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorists. They have ties to Christian white nationalist groups, etc. How are they doing with their campaigns? I mean, it's. I think it's hard to tell the tangible effects because I don't know if they're going in and trying to take over school boards, so you can't measure it based on the success of taking over school boards, but they are making some wins. Two examples is in New Brunswick is the Atlantic province. 
there was I'm not sure if it was legislation or or policy for that kids have to have parental permission to for their teachers to call them by their pronouns and their chosen names. And in Saskatchewan, which is a prairie province, there was parental bill of rights passed by the provincial government, which same thing about the pronouns and the and names. But this provincial government in Saskatchewan used what's called the notwithstanding clause, which overrides the constitution. So the province knew that this bill of rights was unconstitutional and they, they pushed it through anyways. So yes, they're, they're making some gains, but also in the West Coast, where I live, it seemed like there's a bit of an urban-rural divide in terms of public support. So like out in this more suburban places, there was more anti-trans protesters than there was pro-trans protesters. But Vancouver, there was way, way, way more pro-trans counter-protesters. So much so that I think the anti-trans group couldn't even do their march that they had planned. The other thing that they do is they keep us on the defensive, continually, you know, fighting to retain whatever rights we do have, whatever kind of democracy we do have. They are throwing everything at us at once. U.S., there's everywhere now, it seems, a fight about abortion. All of it, school district by school district, congressional district by congressional district, it's a continual battle. But I think more and more people are realizing we are in this battle. It is going to be a long haul. And, and the more they organize, the more you get people who are organizing for the long haul and are prepared. You know, they're stepping up and they're, they're prepared to try to, like, save whatever rights and freedoms we have from these maniacs. It's kind of like soul crushing to realize that we have to fight state by state to retain or win back abortion rights, what is it, 50 years after Roe v. Wade, and you have to fight for some sort of diversity of books in, in the school library and so forth. That's the point we've reached, and it is exhausting. They're well-funded. They can easily tire people out, and that's the good thing so far is, although I'm sure there are a lot of people who are totally tired out and burn out and you know, just withdrawn, there are still a lot of people who, who aren't. And one of the easier things that you can do is every two years or every year, every four years, you, you can vote. And so the fewer people who, smaller group of people who will organize and, and get out the vote, they can marshal a lot larger numbers. And, and it looks like the teachers unions have been doing a very good job against the so-called Moms for Liberty and the 1776 Project. I think the, the alleged moms, allegedly for liberty, even attributed the, the their failures in the recent elections partly to the uh, being out-organized by, by the teachers' unions. Yeah, that, there's a similar similarity there to Canada, too. So when this one million man march against trans people happened, the force in Canada that came out, I think, in the most organized way was public sector unions and district labor councils, teachers unions in particular at the at the head of this. I think that's great. I don't know, five, 10 years ago, I don't know how ready unions would have been to come out openly in support of trans people. And now it just seems like a, a given and that they're they're going in on it and they're saying, no, this can't happen. This is a 
this is a threat to our children, to our education, and to human rights in general, which I think is absolutely true. Marcotte talks about monster liberty being anti-society. I take that to mean a kind of similar thing that MHI has been saying about Trumpism for years, that it seeks to erode the ideas, values, and institutions of liberal democracy. And I definitely think that that's the goal here, is this anti-democratic, illiberal future that these that these people want. You say that allegedly for liberty, <laughs> for sure, they're, what, their definition of liberty is freedom to exercise their will on whoever and to not have anyone else's will exercised over them. That Okay, you call that freedom. Another word for that is domination. So it has nothing to do with liberty at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very Orwellian. It's like, what are they in favor of? Book bans. War is peace. Slavery is freedom. Book bans are freedom. Racially inclusive uh, curriculum, that's against freedom. Anti-LGBTQ, that's for freedom. It's all up is down, down is up. It's totally Orwellian conceptions there. Ultimately, I think that they're, they want to turn U.S. education into Hillsdale College. That's what they want to do, get rid of the public schools and propagandize. And, and the teachers have a professional interest in not doing that. So it's not only that they're stepping up for the kids they teach, they're stepping up for themselves, not letting education be turned into its opposite. That, that might be one reason why at least the teachers' unions have come out so strongly both in the U.S. and in Canada. I think another reason too, and I don't say this to undermine the other reasons, but teachers themselves are coming under fire from these people too. Like, so teaching sexual orientation and gender identity study, sex education, as it was called when I was in school, these teachers are getting called groomers and pedophiles. They're not. They're teaching kids basic things about sexual orientation and gender identity and so they, they're i feel like teachers are, are catching the brunt of this anti-trans propaganda especially the type of propaganda that says that all trans people and all queer people and all people that support trans and queer people are groomers and child abusers so it makes sense that the unions are coming out against that and their careers and their lives are on the line as well. Yeah. This example of book bannings and the attack on trans rights and, and critical race theory, this attack on trans kids and, and racialized kids in, in public schools, there's the people on the left that is, what does this have to do with anything? What, is, what does this have to do with class struggle? I just want to say, I think these people have no grounds to say such things. And it's obvious from these examples, like, sure, trans kids and racialized kids are going to suffer the most from these school board policies or these state level legislation. But every kid suffers from this. Every single kid gets a trash public school education is unprepared for the world. Every single kid is affected. And so I think these leftists that think that trans rights is some like interest group mania sectioned off for other struggles for freedom is just totally, totally incorrect and morally bankrupt. Yes, for the reasons that you said. And in addition, I mean, it's just obvious that the right, the capitalist class tries to divide 
working people from one another on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, on the basis of sexual orientation, on the basis, basis of nationality. That's how they maintain their power is by dividing and conquering. So this has everything to do with the class struggle. That should be obvious. And why it is not obvious to, to such people, I think it has a lot more to do with them wanting to promote their own brand and win support for themselves and their own projects by differentiating themselves from, you know, the genuine grassroots left in the United States, presumably in Canada, you know, and, and of course, differentiate themselves from the liberals and the, the Democratic Party and so forth. So they got their own unique talking points. The problem is their own unique talking points about class struggle don't get to the issue of what is really hindering and presenting an obstacle to working class unity, which is this project of division. I think you're totally right that they take these controversial opinions and posture as like rational strategists or like tough guy truth seekers who say what everybody else is thinking purely just to build their brand, just to get people to join their organizations. But the people that they're targeting are racists and transphobes, and they're trying to win over racists and transphobes. And I just think it's ridiculous. The strategy doesn't work. That's the that's the big takeaway. Yeah, it, it doesn't work in the swing districts. It doesn't work in the swing states, swing school boards, uh, and so forth. So yeah, the Republicans have, have a big problem, and that just makes them more dangerous. The bigger the problems they have, the more extreme they have to be to hold on to white supremacism and everything else. So thank you so much for, for coming on and discussing this with me, Teresa. And I'm sure you'll be on the show in, in the future. Maybe we'll be able to talk about this issue, certainly about other issues as well. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This is Anne Jacquard from Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI. MHI aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. Today, Amidst many wars, climate crises, economic, social, and political crises, is a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we're faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, extinguishing our right even to carry on such discussions. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism and not to socialism. 
We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organizations and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website and podcast to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as to espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as a way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Our collective is working to create an organization so formally rooted in its philosophy that it will not succumb to diversions that may arise from personal agendas and that will be capable of developing and concretizing the philosophy over the long haul, regardless of who its members may be. It is no simple matter to create a democratic organization that is at the same time effective and able to resist efforts to divert it from its goals. We are aware that Marx never achieved an organization based on his philosophy and that Donevskaya's organization disintegrated following her death. But we have made progress in this matter with our principles and bylaws and by recognizing that Marxist humanism cannot be carried on by chance or by individuals alone. An organization is needed in order to test and prove ideas. We invite all of you to join us in this discussion and our initiative. Hi, this is Andrew. Today we have special interviewers, Jane Michaels and Seth Morris, both of whom have appeared on this podcast series, and they are going to be interviewing me about a new article that I've written called, What Can Stop Trumpism? Welcome, Jane. And welcome, Seth. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I guess we could kick off this discussion with the first question about your paper, Andrew. Jane and I have both been on this podcast before to talk about Trump and Trumpism, and you have written and talked a lot about Trump and Trumpism. Why did you write this article now? And is there anything left to say that hasn't already been said about Donald Trump? Well, actually, I mean, the thing that precipitated the writing of this article is Marxist Humanist Initiative is about to hold its annual conference. And I wrote this as initially as a report to the conference. We have to, you know, consider where the organization stands, what we can do in the next year regarding fighting Trumpism and so forth. But there is a good deal of new stuff to say. My report really deals with the new stuff, not what we've already known all along, but the new stuff in particular. Even people who 
Blanche, they're calling Trump a fascist and calling, you know, his outlook and plans fascist are now on board with that. When I wrote this, it wasn't that so much, but I wrote this before the infamous Furman speech that he gave a couple of weeks ago. We're recording this on the 22nd of November. 11 days ago, he, he gave a speech and basically called all of his political opponents vermin. Uh, it's Nazi talk, and basically it means that we should be exterminated. And because of that, people have been looking at uh, what he plans to do if he wins the presidency and takes power again, and it's extremely frightening. So what I do in this article is map out why a second Trump term would be so much worse, so much more frightening than the first term. And secondly, I go into why the response of the Democratic Party to this crisis is so meager and pathetic and does not rise to the occasion of what we need. And thirdly, I talk about this idea of not prosecuting Trump and make his base mad and not disqualifying him from running for office because that'll make his base mad. And we need to let the voters decide as if that's somehow the democratic thing to do. And I say all of this is against the rule of law. It buys into Trumpism's total disrespect and desire to demolish the rule of law and saying that somebody who fomented an insurrection should be able to run for president and be president. That is contrary to liberal democracy, the rule of law. You're not even protecting your system. You're letting an autocrat take over. Also, with regard to the Trump prosecutions, the idea that we shouldn't prosecute Trump for his many crimes against the people. There's the insurrection, there are his financial crimes, there's a lot of stuff, the documents and all of that. And the idea that he should not be prosecuted because we should let the voters decide, that's basically saying the voters should be able to nullify the rule of law. Obviously, that's a big Republican talking point, but there are a lot of people who are buying into that who are not Trumpites. You got your never Trump conservatives, you got some Democrats, you got middle of the road commentators. Basically, to some extent, they're saying, look, the courts, the justice system isn't going to stop Trump. The invocation of the, the 14th Amendment to disqualify him from running, that's not going to work. And so the sure way to stop Trump is at the ballot box. And my view of this is it's insane. First of all, it countenances the end of the rule of law to the simple point is, if the law doesn't matter, only who wins the election matters, well, that's, that's what you're communicating. You're saying, we don't care about the rule of law. We, we've given up on that. We're going to like be in a competition with this fascist. And if he wins, then that's that. Well, no, I'm not willing to give up on the rule of law so easily. And there's a lot of things that can be done. So I think people are giving up prematurely on the rule of law. What I think it needs to be done is, because I don't think the Democratic Party has any kind of serious response to this at all. It's also insane. What's the standard definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. What is the Democratic Party telling us we need to do? Get out there and vote. Key Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg says, OK, we got this, this new project, get to 55. They're trying to increase the Democrats' vote share from, I don't know, 51.4 to 55. And that's going to save us from Trumpism. 
Well, if a decisive victory in the election was going to put an end to Trumpism, why didn't it do so in 2020? He was thrashed by Joe Biden. Biden won the election. So then Trump denies it. All the Trumpites deny it, stole an election, blah, blah, blah. The election did not put an end to Trumpism, and it's not going to do so again, even if they do increase their, their vote share to 55%. This is kind of the thinking that's going on among the Democrats, a lot of the never-Trump conservatives, et cetera, et cetera. They're basically saying the courts are not going to stop Trump. The Constitution, the 14th Amendment isn't going to stop Trump. All we're going to do is tick off his base, and they're going to inflict violence on us. All we can do is try to best him in, in an electoral competition. We know to a large extent this stuff is being rigged. We got a Supreme Court that's made up of right-wingers. They're rolling back voting rights and so forth. All of this is nuts. We might be able to not have Trump win in an election, but that's not going to make the problem go away. What the Democrats are not doing, and the left isn't doing it, the so-called left, the people that call themselves the left, they're not doing it. What we need is a mass movement to stop Trumpism, not just to get to the point where, you know, he loses an election and comes back just as strong, but Trump needs to be defeated. Trumpism needs to be defeated. And it's going to take everything because these people stop at nothing. So to think that you can defeat them by winning an election, we've seen that that doesn't work. And to keep trying that, I'm not saying shouldn't be done as one thing among many, but alone doesn't offer us much. We need a mass movement to defeat Trumpism. The left isn't doing anything to encourage that. The Democrats are not doing anything to encourage that. They're just machine for running in elections and, and trying to win elections. There needs to be a mass movement. There are huge forces out there that are totally opposed to Trump, totally opposed to Trumpism. They need the green light. They need encouragement. They need assistance. And only, I think, a mass movement with the goal of totally eradicating Trumpism is going to do the job in the end. If we don't have that, MAG is going to stay there. It's going to grow. They're going to peddle their lies and, and so forth. What I just find so tragic and, and actually hard to understand is why there is so little discourse of the kind that I'm putting forward right now, which is a very simple thing, a mass movement to defeat Trumpism. It's not a hard idea. Why is nobody talking about this? So to play devil's advocate, is it not democratic if democratically elected Republican politicians to state and federal offices dismantle our democracy? Setting aside election integrity, why can't majority opinion of white supremacists in America, if it comes to that hypothetically, just decide to get rid of democracy altogether as a democratic decision? The means are supposedly democratic. I mean, forget about the Electoral College being undemocratic, forget the um, court decisions that have abrogated to a large extent voting rights and so forth and so on. But playing devil's advocate, assumed that we're talking about the means are democratic and the end is to abolish democracy. So what's undemocratic about that? You're abolishing democracy. I would also like to point out how ironic it is that this whole let the voters decide thing, I think where we're finding it with like, I believe was it Lindsey Graham that said this, that that's probably the only place you'll find it because look what's going on in say like here in Wisconsin where the voters did decide to have Tony Ebers as a governor. 
and they, you know, blocked him in every way they could. They decided to have Janet Protasiewicz as our next Supreme Court judge, and they immediately tried to get her thrown off. Or Ohio with abortion laws, where they didn't like it, so the Republicans went in and tried to change the law themselves. So the idea that they're just like, oh, well, we respect, you know, let the voters decide just seems obviously ironic, but it also seems idiotic, because why would this be a place where we could apply that? And like you said in your article, that's not how it works. Voters decide how they're going to vote based on all kinds of things, not on facts, not on law, not on justice, not on crimes committed. They can have a myriad, myriad of reasons what to vote for. And if we were going to do that, then why wouldn't we say, we could apply that to anything? Well, let's take a vote on it and decide whether this person should pay consequences. It just It's another one of those blatant contradictions that are so frustrating. We're mentioning Ohio. And earlier this month, for the second time, basically this year, Ohio voters said, no, we want there to be the right to abortion in Ohio. And I don't know, the referendum won 56 to 44, something like that, a huge, humongous victory for abortion rights in a Republican, decidedly Republican state. And that didn't stop these people. They're, they're still at the, the practices that you're talking about. They're going to try to find a way for well, there was one idea of not let the courts decide, you know, about restrictions on abortion. And then, uh, then they try all kinds of things. These people stop at nothing. And the whole history that we're dealing with is them stopping at nothing. And if you look at why Trump has the allegiance of his base, it's because he stops at nothing. He doesn't give in. He just comes back again and again and again. This is the MO. This is what the base wants. They don't want compromise. When we're faced with a situation like this, and we are, and event after event after event tells us we are, becomes clear that you try these quarter measures, half measures, you win by 51.4%, you win by 53.6%, unless Trumpism is thoroughly in a humiliating way, these people are just going to be coming back. We're going to be living in continual crisis. And in fact, this has been the whole history of, of white supremacy in this country. And Trumpism is just its latest face. These people have never been thoroughly defeated and rooted out. And so we have crisis after crisis after crisis. The time has come, put an end to all of this. It can only, I think, be fully rooted out by a mass movement that is going to do what it takes to fully root it out. And we might not get another chance because these people are desperate. They're losing. They know that they're losing. And they're increasingly desperate. And Trump himself, you know, who's he's the personification of this set of grievances and desperation and the feeling that the countries move beyond them, they want to take back their country. He wants revenge on all of his enemies. And there's a very good reason for it. If he doesn't take revenge, he's looking at the dismantling of you know, his business so-called empire. He's looking at serious prison time. So he's personally desperate. He's reflecting the desperation of the people who listen to great replacement thinking and saying, oh, my God, here we got a nice white Christian country and, you know, all these other people are taking it away from us. And it's now or never. That, that's the way they think. So they're not going to stop. 
Well, what we've seen for close to a decade now is they stop at nothing. And Hillary Clinton called them basket of deplorables. She said half of Trump's voters were basket of deplorables. So people go, oh, you shouldn't say that, blah, 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 blah. So people didn't say they're basket of deplorables. What good did that do? Turn them into different people who say, oh, okay, let's compromise with these nice people who don't call us a basket of deplorables. No, no nothing like this ever happens. I just had one more point, too, to your stopping at nothing. Um, what's happening in the Voting Rights Act, how they just changed the law to where regular people and organizations cannot bring court cases involving people's voting rights being challenged. Regular people can't bring that to the courts anymore. Now only a court can. Do you think that's in direct response to, you know, maybe something like let the voters decide? Well, you know, crap. Well, now we have to go back and make sure that there's even less chance for voters to decide because, you know, what if they do rise up and they do win? So we better take away even more rights. Like that was a huge blow to the Voting Rights Act. I think that's got to greatly affect people's ability to vote. I mean, that is a purpose. Republicans have been going after the Voting Rights Act for a very long time now. I think it's been more than a decade that the Supreme Court gutted really the major enforcement mechanism of the Voting Rights Act, which basically said that states that have violated it, they're answerable to the Department of Justice. And now, I guess for the last decade, they haven't been. And there was a court decision the other day just came down. It might be reversed obviously going to go to the Supreme Court. They're doing everything they can to restrict voting rights. In that way, there's a lot of uh, voter suppression. And then there's all the the move by the MAGA people to get into positions like the Secretary of State and other positions where they can. And they look, they, they tried this in, in 2020. They can override what the voters say if they don't like the result and point the fake selectors at whatever to make the Republican candidate win. So there's a lot of hypocrisy, undoubtedly, to the stuff about let the voters decide. The hypocrisy doesn't phase them because it's just a way of triggering the libs, which is a lot of what they're all about, I think. They don't aim for any consistency. They don't aim for any principles. I mean, their, their principle is we win, you lose. That's, that's, that's their two principles. Also, just on the point you're saying about Hillary Clinton and the deplorable thing, if you notice there's like the phenomenon of if a Democrat or someone on the left says something harsh or mean, per se, like the deplorable thing, they jump all over it. And they're like, you can't say that, you can't say that. And they still will not let go of that word. But yet on the other side, they can say pretty much anything about anyone and it's not looked at in the same way. I think in my view, it is pretty exceptional of Trump as a Republican politician to act so desperately and relentlessly, as both pointed out. The Republican Party attack on liberal democratic rule of law has existed as long as I've been alive. It predated Trump, as Trump's political career at least. But under Trump, there is crisis in U.S. rule of law throughout the judicial system that I worry about that's more than just Trump judges being corrupt or Republican politicians being corrupt. And a lot of people probably see this the threats against Judge Chutkin, against Judge Angoron and Jack Smith, anyone who is trying to bring liberal democratic rule of law, as it is written in the Constitution, to bear on Donald Trump's crime, puts themselves in crossfires of right-wing terrorists. That is terrifying. And you see this judge in Colorado who just refused to disqualify Trump from the presidential ballot in 2024, 
even though the judge found that Trump did uh, engage in insurrection against the U.S. government on January 6th and surrounding those events. And it seems to me partly because that is a big precedent. And even if it's clear to the people who are paying attention that Trump should be disqualified based on the Constitution, that judge, from what I've heard, is worried that them making this decision is potentially setting a bad precedent for the rule of law. And I'm not sure if it would be as much as it would be politically risky of that judge to do so. But we can't play hot potato with the rule of law and just hope that someone somewhere down the line finally convicts Trump of something. It was a bizarre decision by that judge. She said he engaged in insurrection. So the 14th Amendment applies and to that extent. However, it's not clear from the language of the Constitution whether he is an officer of the United States government, speaking of the president, and he didn't take an oath of office to support the Constitution. He took an oath of office to protect, defend, and spit polish the Constitution, whatever, whatever it is. The wording was slightly different. So I don't want to take it on myself as a judge to rule whether president is somebody to whom the 14th Amendment applies. It's a very consequential decision. And basically, it's like, oh, my God, I'm a little judge here in Colorado. I'm going to let the, the higher up courts, ultimately the Supreme Court, of course, decide. And, and you're speculating, Seth, is what a lot of people have speculated. She was afraid of the political blowback. Look, people have every reason, I think, to fear the political blowback. You got the vigilantes. Uh, on January 6th, we, we had a full-blown insurrection. You got Trump threatening law clerks, judges, prosecutors. You got these crazy people who listen to this and respond to the threats, and they come after Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer. All, all this stuff is going on. There's good reason to fear these people. The problem is this. Appeasing them just gives them more time to solidify, to grow, to come back stronger, stronger, stronger. The more we let this go, the worse it becomes. That has been the history of the last close to a decade. So, yes, they're threatening violence. They engage in violence. But the longer we let this go, the worse it's going to be. I don't see how anybody can look at the record and deny that that's what the record shows us. And then the more it becomes normative and acceptable and people think, oh, well, it's been okay this whole time. It must be okay. Right. Growing that threats of vigilante violence aren't a reason to withdraw from politics and focus on yourself. This is the time where political action is more necessary than usual. Do you feel that we as a society may need to spend less time focusing on Trump as an unethical individual than on Trump as the figurehead of a fascist movement? We in Marxist Humanist Initiative have been very clear about this for a good long time now. What we say is that the problem is Trumpism, not Trump himself. He's more than just, I would say, a figurehead. He's more like the personification of this ideology, Trumpism. And he's the leader of it, and he's helped to consolidate it and move it into the mainstream once again. But Trumpism as an ideology of, you know, 
white nationalism, essentially, that long predates Trump. In 2017, going back all the way to 2017, we said Trumpism is a pre-existing condition. And we, we said, look at George Wallace, who was governor of Alabama. I mean, it's the same stuff, slightly refurbished. And it goes back even further. So nobody should ever think that it's just a matter of Trump. And I think it's become increasingly clear to people that, you know, we were right about this. Trump has power. He's been able to take over the whole of the Republican Party to basically remake the party in the image of of himself and, and Trumpism because he's got the fervent support of this base, the MAGA base, the Trumpite base. That's where his power in the main stems from. I mean, he's also tied in with uh, Putin and so forth. And there are moneyed interests in the Republican sphere and so forth. But the reason nobody can run against Trump as an alternative to Trump really in the Republican Party is they know they're going to lose. Even people who were like, oh, God, we don't want this Christian nationalist Mike Johnson to be Speaker of the House. Well, Trump wanted him. They'd already said, we're not going to go Republicans for Jim Jordan. You keep going against Trump. What's he going to do? He's going to get his people. They're going to run candidates against you in the primary. And what we've seen again and again is the the people who Trump does not want, they, they lose in the Republican primaries, and they're never heard from again, like his former attorney general, Jeff Sessions. I mean, and this has happened again and again. So the power of Trump is the power ultimately or at least largely, of the Trumpite base. We're only going to get rid of Trumpism by defeating not just Trump, but all of Trumpism. However, I firmly think that the way to drive a wedge between Trump and the base, I think the only way to drive a wedge that will separate the two things is a thorough, humiliating defeat of Trump himself. I'm not just talking about losing an election. I'm talking about losing his business empire. I'm talking about imprisonment of himself and, and his cronies and just a thorough repudiation of all of this stuff at the societal level. We're not going to make people think differently. We, we're not going to change their hearts and minds through persuasion. They want what they want. They want white nationalism. They want misogyny. They want Christian dominion and all of this. But a mass movement can move things to the point that this is thoroughly repudiated at a societal level, and these people realize that they have lost and that there is no hope for them to, quote, take back their country. That is something that is feasible. And I think that has to be the perspective, reasoning with them, compromising with none of that's going to work because, again, they can't compromise. What they want is fascism, white nationalism, and fascism to enforce white nationalism. They're not going to stop until they get their demands met. And so really is they either do what they've got in store for the rest of us, which is, you know, you heard the vermin talk. And really, I mean, it's eliminationist rhetoric. This leads to 
gas chambers in the end. I don't know if it'll go that far, but that is the logic of what they're talking about. So maybe as a follow-up, thinking about Trump as an individual versus Trump as a figurehead of the movement, you mentioned in your article, Project 2025, I briefly glanced through website and the document of Project 2025. It's a, a plan arranged by a huge number of think tanks and MAGA academics that uh, promote some kind of cooperative model for how conservatives or, you know, fascists can uh, understand the plan to destroy liberal democracy and institute totalitarianism. But there's a difficulty when dealing with fascists or just deceitful political actors like Trump and his supporters. Difficult sometimes to distinguish what is real and what's just rhetoric. And my thoughts on Project 2025, looking at the economic section, there's a lot of rhetoric about fair and free trade and, you know, stuff that might sound good to conservatives or centrists, but has no relation to what Trump actually intends to do as president and what the Trump movement would realize. What should we really expect from Trump when he's trying to convince people that he's going to make America great and be their retribution, whatever that means? There are two things involved here, how he and they are going to rule and then what they're going to do with their rule or going to at least try to do with their rule. And as you say, Project 25, which is kind of spearheaded by the Heritage Foundation, basically what it's an attempt to do is not to squander the time like the time that was squandered during uh, the first Trump term as president, and it was squandered because they didn't control the civil service, the so-called deep state. It was squandered because he appointed a lot of you know reasonable Republican, independent, civic-minded at some level people for the cabinet and, and so forth, not fascist stooges and toadies. And it was squandered because Trump didn't know what the hell he's doing. And, you know, all he really cares about is his shady business deals and his, you know, petty vengeances, and he's lazy to boot. So what Project 2025 is all about is, no, none of that crap. There's not going to be any adults in the room. There's not going to be any room. Okay, the adults in the room were like, you know, the the Mattises and, and the John Kellys and people telling Trump, no, you can't do this. It's contrary to the Constitution. There aren't going to be people like that. And they're going to gut civil service in the sense of they're going to try to turn tens of thousands, 50,000 people or so who are in non-political, just government jobs, you know, maybe like answering queries at the Internal Revenue Service, whatever. They're going to basically say, no, you are employed at the discretion of the president, get rid of their civil service union protections and so forth. So you serve at the pleasure of the president and you don't do what he wants, you're gone. And they're beginning to, you know, take resumes and staff up so that everybody that they fire by reclassifying them or by intimidating people that they can't reclassify, they're going to move their their, their toadies in to the, the civil service and basically make the entire executive branch a tool to do Trump's bidding. And he had trouble with his cabinet again and again, couldn't get his cabinet 
appointees confirmed by the Senate. So what he resorted to doing was, well, so-and-so is acting this, acting attorney general, acting this and that. And part of this project 2025 is like, yeah, screw the Senate, screw confirmation, just put in these acting people and they'll be able to act and they'll do what you say. And so they're screening people also to, you know, like, are you down with what Trump wants to do? And if he tells you to jump, you know, are you going to say how high? So there's a lot of things in place like that. Also, you know, getting rid of the independence of the Department of Justice so that Department of Justice is the top law enforcement body in the entire country. And the the plan is to make that also a tool of, of Trump. So that's how they they intend to get a start, you know, a jump start from day one, from inauguration day. Okay. They're going to basically institute one man rule of the, the entire executive branch. It's just going to be an instrument to do Trump's bidding. And then we come to what Trump wants to do. And they're like these conservative policies, and that keeps the, the conservatives on board. And, you know, there's going to be the tax cuts and the gutting of any any sort of climate action and, and so forth and so on. Of course, there's going to be, you know, more anti-abortion moves and so forth. But the key to what Trump wants to do is revenge. And that was already clear when I wrote this article. It was completed by the uh, late October. And, you know, since his vermin speech, it's become even more clear. All of these prosecutors, the judges, the Democrats who impeached him, the communists, the Marxists, you know, we're all vermin, okay, according to him, uh, and, and we're there to be crushed. And the press as well, what is being said is, well, we're going to have a Justice Department and we're going to have Homeland Security. We're going to have all of these these agencies and so forth. And, that, and God knows what they've got going on in the courts. That's going to be the first order of business is exacting revenge against all of his opponents. Do you think that there's an element of a large section of his followers that will be, say, all the facts come out? I mean, obviously they will in court and they show that he, you know, did falsify his records and he did, you know, do all these things and he is put in jail and he is like, humiliated, but there's going to be a large section of people who still will think that that's bullshit, basically, right? So, I mean, wouldn't I think it would be helpful, I was just thinking that there'd be an element of him doing his own self in, I don't know how to say it, like proving that, you know, maybe he was on tape or something, like talking about his followers or something, something that really showed that it wasn't just like the Democrats or the, the corrupt judges bringing him down. Because like, I feel like there's going to be such a big chunk of people who will no matter no matter what the findings are like we've said before it's not going to change their minds you know they're still just going to think like oh well that was rigged and this was that like there's got to be an element of him creating his own obvious public downfall i don't think that anything factual will do the trick we can see this from the way he's gaming the trials the trials are going against him is very clear. So not only is he, you know, trying to intimidate witnesses, jurors, so forth and so on, what does he do? During a break, he comes out and he acts defiant and he gives you gives us his spin. That's the goal of this. The goal of this is there are two sides. As long as you can create two sides, okay, so that the truth could be this or the truth could be that, and everybody gets to decide, then, of course, his base is going to decide we like his version, okay? That's been happening again and again. There's no reason it's going to change. 
humiliation would be something like where you finally get a court to say, no, you're going to sit there and you're going to rot in prison because of your violations of the restrictions, you know, and the conditions of release. You violated these terms. We can not release you. You are a threat. And you will be released when you come hat in hand and plead and confess and beg us to let you out because you're finally going to be well-behaved. And only when he's well-behaved does he get let out. That would be humiliation. And it would be even better if that got recorded. But as long as he can show defiance, as long as he can spin his crap with impunity, I don't think anything is, is, is going to be done. Then we can speak about like other forms of humiliation. I mean, I think without saying that Trump is literally, you know, a replay of Mussolini or Hitler, we can learn things from uh, history. And we can look at the difficulties that fascism had in surviving and regrouping after the defeat of World War II. Italy was occupied. Germany was occupied. Mussolini was executed. And then he was hung out to dry, you know, from his feet in the piazza in Milan. And there was afraid of the same thing happening to him. So he committed suicide. Uh, that is the level of a humiliating defeat wherein the people who were backing these people said, okay, I've had enough. I'm out of here. We've lost. Let me salvage what remains of my life. That's you know, ultimately where this stuff could go. Unfortunately, that took uh, years of world war, and it cost of a tremendous number of lives. Look, that is what it took, but do the job for a good long time. Bringing up Hitler's death in the bunker and your comments about um, Trump and the Trump movement not being swayed by the truth or facts. Hitler's testament shows that he believed everything he was saying up until his dying moment and thought that his campaign must be continued because he actually, there's nothing cynical or sarcastic about his politics. That for fascism specifically, if not more broadly other reactionary political ideologies, that fascists reject their own humanity in embracing fascism? I think that what Hitler did was he believed in his cause. I don't think Hitler believed in the literal veracity of a lot of things that he said. It was palpable that, that he was lying a lot of the time. And I think that to a large extent, that's what's going on with his followers and so forth. They they believe in their cause. They believe, you know, in a white nationalist society. They believe in a Christian domineering society. They believe in whatever. The facts are not important to them to a very large degree. I don't think that's surprising because I think that's a very widespread social phenomenon. I think a good deal of the left really doesn't care about you know accuracy either. They believe that they're on the right side. They believe that what they're doing is justified. That would not surprise me, especially when you get a fanatic like Hitler. To me, all this goes to is 
this idea of changing people's minds with facts uh, has very severe limits. We've seen that, but this explains why they're very severe limits, because people are down with their cause. They believe that their cause is right in some way. That has nothing to do with facts. So why would facts turn them from one direction to another? Do you draw any practical implications from what you're saying about uh, Trump and fascist or post-truth problem, if you want to call it that, uh, the inability to accept the truth or acknowledge what even constitutes a true fact or not? Uh, do you think this has important consequences for how we can build a kind of grassroots movement that you talk about, the kind that we need to stop Trump? Certainly, we do not have to accept their attitude to truth. Uh, in fact, that attitude is threatening us. The fact that it has been allowed to fester and bloom is among the major things that has made our lives worse. We get news media that is tied unshakably to this formula of both sidesism. One recent example was the way the New York Times initially reported on the the Berman speech is uh, was something like Trump takes campaigning in an unusual direction or some really horrible thing like that. There is a disrespect for truth in the society at large that needs to be fought. I think there are some people who do care about this, but not enough. I think, you know, you do manage to spark a mass movement. This has got to be an important facet of, of the mass movement. The mass movement has to try to influence the direction of reporting. This idea of you get to choose which narrative you like, which sources of misinformation, disinformation, everything's fine. No, I mean, even if you're not talking about laws to curtail so-called speech, you can bring things into such disrepute that people are not going to do it. I mean, there are ways to influence the norms of society. With regard to the Trump trials, what the judge in the New York Trump Organization case and presumably juries in these other cases, what they're going to be doing is deciding what the facts are. They are committed to making judgments on the basis of the facts and applying the law to the facts. We've got to uphold this and we've got to say, you know, yeah, well, you like this guy and you believe his cause is just, well, it doesn't matter. Tough noogies. He violated the law. He's got to be held accountable for this because these are the facts. We don't care what you say because you're not talking about the facts, you're talking about your conspiracy theories or, or, or whatever. We're not going to convince these people. We can do is draw a line and to say, your behavior, your ways of operating are just not acceptable, and we as a society are not going to stand for it anymore. We're not going to change people's hearts and minds until their maximum leader, I alone can fix it, you know, is shown not to be able to fix anything because he's He's rotting in prison or he's escaped to Sochi, you know, in southern Russia, wherever it might be. I was just going to say that I, in my head, I just have all these like individual things kind of flashing around, right? Like the first time I heard, was it Kaylee McEnany? 
And she said, those are alternative facts. And I remember how social media just like blew up, you know, alternative facts, alternative facts. And it was one of those moments where we were like, oh, this is it. You know, this is it where people are going to be like, okay, this is crazy. But it wasn't. It's just like now alternative facts is like a joke or something. You might even get an email about on dictionary.com. You know, there's just so many things like I feel like our world was progressing in a way towards, you know, transparency in a lot of things, you know, like the internet was providing people answers and facts and, you know, and then at the same time, we're going backwards. I just don't really understand how there's a way out of that, that I can figure out even just like, like Argentina yesterday elected this new president and he's like dismantling all the news media outlets that he's specifically says that, you know, anybody who was against me, I'm taking you down. I mean, how can we go against that? You know, it used to be work in elder care and like every grandpa in the world had CNN on, you know, and they were just glued to their boring Republican politics. It was respected. And then it was like laughed at and just in a time where there's all these purposeful disinformation campaigns and people out there who are like admitted rightly so like tired and exhausted of trying to fruitlessly figure out what's true and what's not and fighting with people next to them where people in a different country or different state are trying to lie to them and mess with them. It's just a mess. It's a, it's a mess. And especially if we keep having more attacks on the media and journalism, like especially if Trump did win the next election. Right. By the way, that wasn't Kaylee McEnany. I mean, there's been so much history. It was Kellyanne Conway. Oh, yeah. Oh. Names are kind of similar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and this was right after inauguration when he came into office. Not a lot of people showed up. And his press secretary, John Spicer at the time, you know, lied about, oh, you know, this was the, the crowd size, much bigger than Obama. And, and this was Kelly and Conway said, oh, well, you know, your facts, these are the alternative facts. So, you know, from the moment he was in office, this regime of untruth began in earnest. And even more so on that point, too, like Sean Spicer, who the man was a joke, you know, how, you know, getting spicy with the facts. It was very funny, his name. But even even though he was an enemy, basically lying to us, he eventually became he got on Saturday Night Live and all these other things. So it wasn't like he wasn't like cast out in a way that was like, you are a liar. That's despicable. We don't accept that. It was like, oh, that was funny. Now, come on and be on entertainment TV, like glossing over, I guess. Oh, yeah. The degree of normalization of this stuff is really un unbelievable. And the both sides is them. And it's not just an ideological matter. I think it's Josh Marshall at Talking Points Memo, he says, this way of doing journalism, the both sides-ism, it's not just coming from the journalists, and it's not even coming from their editors. It's coming from people who look at the bottom line and who look at the advertisers. The advertisers want the maximum audience. And if you're going to like insist on the truth as against a story with two sides, you lose some of your audience. So basically, we want to appeal to as many people as possible. So we're not going to report that this is true, this is false, this is true, this is false. And unless something seriously changes, we've got this problem. But I'll tell you, I, I think that the, the idea that journalism, if it were pursued differently, could save us is, is not correct either. Because, you know, there are all these information bubbles and silos. People glom on to the narratives that they like, and only by 
making that kind of behavior disreputable at the same time we're fighting every other aspect of Trumpism. That is the only thing that's going to do away with it. really think it's going to take a mass movement. I'm so totally thoroughly pissed off the Democratic Party at the so-called left. Everybody who is like just not rising to the challenge, because I'll tell you, this mass movement has been trying to be formed. You had the resistance that came out, you know, the day after Trump's inauguration. You had Me Too. You had March for Our Lives, the kids, the high school kids. You had the Black Lives Matter uprising, you know, that took on world significance, you know, went swept swept the globe. I mean, if these people were given some encouragement, they could crystallize. We could we could fight off Trumpism so that, of course, he's not going to be you know reelected, okay? Because the courts are going to say we don't want to face this mass movement and its wrath, so we're going to keep him off the ballot or something, right? Or put him in prison or. Look, God forbid he does assume the presidency. What are we going to do then? We're going to roll over and play dead and say, oh, well, plurality of voters, you know, in the right swing states with the court decision about voting rights and that court decision, he managed to sneak in. So we're going to roll over and play dead and allow him to create concentration camps for, for, for immigrants and jail his enemies and kill his enemies. That's the voters have spoken. I mean, this is this is just nuts that they're going to countenance this. So even if he does manage to become president again, the perspective has got to be we have to keep these people from exercising any any power. And definitely that's going to require a mass movement and a lot of things can be done to prevent these people from exercising power. They don't have the full allegiance of anybody, you know, in in this country, they don't have the full allegiance of the military. You got a lot, a lot of black people in the military. You know, some of them are, are Trumpites, but by and large, no. And yes, you know, going to be very, very difficult, but I'm not in, in going to roll over and play dead. And I hope that there are uh, tens of millions of other people who think the same way. I guess I have an opinion going back to when we were talking about uh, the left not being sufficiently concerned with the truth, that there is a post-truth left, I believe that. Um, and talking about the truth, what the truth is, can sound pretty vague and philosophical, but it's, it's a practical necessity uh, for our politics when we're facing this tremendous threat. I don't know how to adequately describe it. I don't want to minimize the threat. Some people say there is no objective truth, some people say, the truth is my truth. What I want to believe is what's true. Bill O'Reilly famously had the no sin zone on his talk show to try to set up a pretense of objectivity when he was the most opinionated, uninformed guy around at the time. Um, and that's not what the truth is. We can't concede that definition to the post-truth left or right. And when talking about the post-truth left, um, we've talked about historical precedents 
Like I think a big one is the Red Army Fraction from Germany in the 70s, which was a Marxist-Leninist group that turned into a terrorist organization that kind of saw itself as representing team anti-fascism against team fascism led by the West German state and Israel also. But these quote-unquote leftists increasingly seem to resemble right-wing extremists and fascists themselves the further they dove into this partisan politics that disregards the truth and history. And that is a precedent that concerns me, even in the present, not just vaguely, that kind of politics could manifest in the left in the U.S. and around the world right now. This manifests itself a lot on the the so-called left nowadays in the U.S., not from you know, like the Red Army Fraction or anything like that, so-called populist left, I think they still have this perspective of winning over the Trumpite base who's disaffected and this and that, and whatever means you use to win them over, that's fine. There, There is a basic difference between speaking the truth and saying things that will persuade and convince people they want to hear. So that's where the rot begins, when you temper and water down your commitment to the truth by bringing in this foreign element of what is going to play in Peoria or whatever town you know, you're know you speaking of. And a lot of times it goes along with various perspectivist or postmodernist views, you know, and that there is no truth or we can't know what the truth is. I think it it, it really has become uh, deadly because of the normalization of this set of practices where whatever people want to say, whatever they want to, quote, believe, whatever they want to hold to is just unchallenged. If they're told that they're wrong and here's why they're wrong and we're not going to hear anything more from you because you're lying to us. If if that were repeated again and again on a daily level in, you know, daily interactions, I think it could do a lot of good. We just have too much toleration for people saying, believing, whatever. Okay, this is not a free speech issue. This is an issue of what do you regard as acceptable behavior? It's really hard to not, when you're talking and you're saying those things, it's really hard if I just took my mind to another place, it would be like you're talking about Christianity. You know, uh, that precedent has been set through institutions like Christianity about just like believing whatever, you know, in your heart per se, or that what this random sect of Christianity says, like, oh, actually, it was this, this is the way it happened. And someone comes in and they're like, actually, no, I have proof of that. And they're like, well, you're kicked out of the church. And just such a parallel. And I think that has a lot of validity for why it is the way it is, especially with a lot of the Trumpites themselves. It's natural for them to believe without reason. And this goes back at least to 1964. I was a little kid back then, but I believe that Barry Goldwater was running against Lyndon Johnson. I believe his main campaign slogan was, in your heart, you know he's right. Uh, but yeah. There's certainly a lot of institutions, religions, religious institutions, a lot of things 
have gone on for a very long time to encourage this and to bring us the crisis that we face. If I'm not mistaken, I'm not really sure about this, but if I'm not mistaken, Barry Goldwater, in your heart, you know he's right, thing was a racist dog whistle at the time. Can you explain the term dog whistle to me? I didn't know that term. You know how dogs have a different range of audible sound than we do? Yeah. Okay. So when you blow a dog whistle, the dog can hear it, but people maybe can't hear it. Okay. So it's an analogy of you're saying something racist, but it's got plausible deniability from among normal people. They say, well, it could be interpreted this way. It could be interpreted that way. But the the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the QAnon people, they know exactly what's being said. But you get, get the analogy, right? Yeah, Why definitely. It's dog whistle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's like one of those things where you're like the killjoy, right? Like, that's racist. And people are like, oh, it's not racist. You're just overthinking it or you're just looking for things or something where it's like they probably really is. And yeah. Your article is about the present moment, but it begins with a section titled The Still Unfinished American Revolution and the Threat of Trumpism. You go all the way back to the founding of the country, the American Revolution. Why? Because of the white supremacism that has held the United States, you know, in its grip since the founding of the country. I mean, this is a capitalist country, but it's not a pure capitalist country. It's never been a colorblind capitalist country. It's a capitalist country with racial discrimination. You know, it had slavery, then it had Jim Crow, et cetera, et cetera. So if you think in terms of like a democratic country, with equal democratic rights for all. We've never actually had that, uh, although, you know, since the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, things markedly improved. And that was as a result of the, the civil rights struggles, the Black struggles of the 1950s and 60s, but it's still a continuous battle. So when this country was founded, all, all men, they use the term men, all men are created equal except for all of the enslaved people from Africa. They didn't have the rights of citizens. It's only a partial or unfinished revolution. And to complete that revolution, they had to fight a civil war. So that was, what, 1868, 65. And, you know, so you got the ending of slavery, you got the citizenship for formerly enslaved people, and they could vote. 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment to the Constitution. And you had Reconstruction in, in the South. Um, and, you know, you had a very brief period, dozen years or so, where you had multiracial, radical Republican rule, even in the South, and there were uh, federal troops, you know, Union troops, so to speak, controlling the situation. But there was the reaction against that. And you had then the rolling back of the Reconstruction, uh, the federal troops left, northern industrialists didn't want to keep it going any more than the southern plantation owners. So the the formerly enslaved people never got the, the farmland that they needed, the 40 acres, the mule that would have freed them economically, not just formally from the, the plantation owners. 
And then also you get the Jim Crow laws, you know, the segregationist white supremacist laws, and they take over once again. And so to a very large extent, black people, especially in the South, had very little freedom. Very few of them were able to vote. There were various tricks to keep them from voting. They remained, you know, just dirt poor, very exploited. Uh, there was tremendous discrimination. Uh, there was de jure, you know, uh, legally imposed segregation. And that basically remained in effect until the 50s and 60s. You began to get decisions by the Supreme Court to desegregate the schools. You got the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, only by means of the, the Civil Rights Freedom Now struggle, the situation really began to materially improve. But at that point, the reaction set in once again. And you began to get this political realignment whereby, okay, the Democrats were the, the face of racial progress. So increasingly, white supremacy moved into the Republican Party. The Republican Party became the face of, of white supremacy. And more and more and more over the decades, that's what we've had. Political realignment has basically been completed by this, this point. It, it really accelerated after Obama, you know, who was black, was, was elected. You had the Tea Party and birtherism and, and Trump, Trumpism, MAGA, all of this. So that revolution just in terms of liberal democratic rights, that revolution has never been completed. It hasn't been completed because of, of the lack of a will and of resistance from among the white supremacist forces. They get defeated, they come back again. Why? Because they've never been totally crushed, you know, totally thoroughly humiliated until people say, okay, this is it. There is no future in this anymore. That's the perspective that we need to have right now is once and for all, do, do away with this stuff. They're able to pull various kinds of tricks. They had slavery, they got rid of slavery, but people were kept, formerly enslaved people were kept poor. They were kept picking cotton, picking tobacco, uh, having to work for the, the former slave owners. And they, they lacked civil rights. They formerly had the right to vote, but they were not able to vote through various measures like poll taxes, where you had to pay to be able to vote or literacy tests. Meanwhile, the, you know, the Southern education system keeps them from getting more than a few scraps of education. So that gets outlawed. What do they do now? They come up with new, new tricks. The new attacks on voting rights, for instance, but Jane just mentioned that uh, private individuals and, and groups can no longer try to get the Voting Rights Act enforced in court, according to this latest court decision. We had in, in Georgia, it happens elsewhere. What do they do now? They, they restrict the number of polling places. Okay, so you you got to go, you know, further to vote. And because there's fewer polling places, you got to stand in longer and longer lines. And what do they do in Georgia? Oh, it's illegal to give, you know, a sandwich or a bottle of water to somebody standing in line, you know, while, while they're trying to vote. So there's all kinds of tricks that get used. And it happens again and again and again. These people are losing. They're desperate. Because they're desperate, you know, they really think that this is the, the 
make or break moment for the future of white supremacy in America. This is the great replacement theory. They're going to go all out. They're going all out. So they're in a last gasp effort to save their country as they understand the country. Really, this is the overriding point of my article is this stuff has never been crushed. Because it's never been crushed, it comes back again and again and again. You know, MAGA Trumpism is just the latest face of this, and we're going to continue to have these crises until we take the bull by the horns and root out white supremacism once and for all. And that's got to be the perspective. Because if, if, if we don't get them, they're going to get us. That's how desperate they are. The only thing that I would say about that is that it kind of goes along with the post-truth thing. Because, I mean, you could say what you just said to a lot of Trump supporters and they would just be like, that's not true. They were given their rights. Everything was done for them and they just messed it up or they don't do it right or disputing what you said, basically. So, I mean, it just kind of goes along in that same idea of that this is the truth. But how do you get the truth to mean something? I mean, and they're so concerned with critical race theory, so-called Right. Um, look, at some level, they know that what they're saying is complete crap. OK, they, if they had, you know, the facts on their side, they, they would be much more confident. They wouldn't be trying to ban books and they wouldn't be trying to, you know, rig the curricula and so forth. But I think we need to call an end to this discussion, at least for right now. Just call it a pause. Uh, and I thank you both. It's been a very good discussion. I think it's brought out a lot of the mentions of the the situation that we face, the problems which are severe, but I think also the the directions in which we can begin to work our way out of this crisis. So, I mean, I'm always very happy to discuss. This issue, not because it's fun, but because it's it's so important. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to, by engaging seriously with with me about what I've written. Uh, so thank you, Jane Michaels. Thank you, uh, Seth Morris. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much thank. for having us. You've been listening to episode 105 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast coming to you deep within capitalist society. Thank you very much for listening. Please keep listening to future episodes and please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org to listen to past episodes, to learn more about the issues, to post comments, and to donate to this podcast series. Thank you very much. Goodbye.